0: Welcome to the Safe Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maria Lee, General Practitioner and Medical Advisor in the health regulation sector. I analyze medical errors and clinical incidents for a living. And along the way, I've learned a lot about the principles and the mechanics of safe practice, which I'm hoping to share with you in this podcast. I hope you stay tuned. And if you learn something, please pay it forward and share your knowledge with other clinicians. That way, pod by pod, we can build a safer healthcare system together. Of course, the content and opinions expressed in this podcast are entirely my own and are not the views of any of the organizations or bodies with which I am affiliated. So without further ado, let's get stuck into some safe practice. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Safe Practice Podcast. Today is another clinical topic episode. And the question that we're aiming to answer in today's episode is, at what stage do we stop using beta-HCG to monitor the progression of a pregnancy? And to discuss this topic, I have with me a guest, obstetrician, Dr. Alex Owen. Hello, Alex.
1: Hello, Maria. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. Can you introduce yourself to us? I'm an obstetrician and gynaecologist and also a sonologist, So I'm an ultrasound specialist and I work in the eastern suburbs of Sydney.
0: So Alex, I've got a scenario to start with. And that scenario is this. A woman presents with PV bleeding in her first trimester of pregnancy. A few days ago, she'd had an ultrasound, which actually showed a normally progressing intrauterine gestation of nine weeks, with a fetal heart of around 150. Now, at this presentation, the woman's beta-HCG is checked again, and it's compared against her previous week's beta-HCG. And it's noticed that the beta-HCG has fallen slightly since that last reading a week ago. As a result, the woman is counseled that her pregnancy is probably failing and she's likely to miscarry at some point soon. Now, the patient is understandably devastated. Two weeks later, because no products of conception have been passed spontaneously, medical termination of pregnancy is prescribed. The patient goes as far as to purchase the medication from the pharmacy, but before she takes it, she's requested one last ultrasound, just to be sure. At this ultrasound, to everyone's shock, the pregnancy is found to have progressed normally in the interval. The ultrasound now shows a live fetus measuring 11 weeks gestation, and there is also evidence of a subchorionic hematoma which in retrospect was probably the likely cause of the pv bleeding two weeks ago so we have here a woman who was told that she was probably miscarrying based on a beta hcg that had fallen slightly since the previous reading and we went as far as to almost terminate this pregnancy How did this happen? How did it get from likely to miscarry to normally progressive pregnancy? Alex, what lessons can we learn from this scenario?
1: Well, Maria, I I think the first lesson we can learn from this is that PV bleeding in the first trimester is very common. And while it can be associated with pregnancy loss, more commonly it's associated with a favorable pregnancy outcome. In many cases of bleeding in the first trimester, we do see a subchorionic hematoma, which is essentially a collection of blood clot or a bruise, if you like, outside the gestational sac. And while these hematomas can be associated with an increased rate of miscarriage, most of the time they do resolve spontaneously without any undue effect on the pregnancy. So the the first lesson we can learn from this scenario is that bleeding in pregnancy is not necessarily evidence of miscarriage. The second lesson to learn from this scenario is that measuring the beta HCG level in a woman's blood is of no value once a viable intrauterine pregnancy has been confirmed. We know that beta HCG levels do vary considerably between women of the same gestational age, and they also vary considerably by gestational age in an individual woman. So once an embryonic heartbeat has been seen in an intrauterine pregnancy, The only way to confirm or exclude the ongoing viability of that pregnancy is with an ultrasound rather than by monitoring any changes in the woman's beta HCG level. And the reason for this is that we know that beta HCG levels will change naturally throughout the pregnancy. Uh, typically it's first detectable very early on around the time of a missed period it will then rise exponentially and typically peak around eight to ten weeks gestation and then the level will actually decline and usually at around 20 weeks it reaches its nadir and then remains roughly stable throughout the rest of the pregnancy We also know that there's wide variation in beta HCG levels between labs, different labs use different methodologies for for measuring the beta HCG level. So measuring a beta HCG level in a known viable pregnancy or pregnancy that has previously been proven to be viable is of no value because whether that level's gone up or down or stayed much the same doesn't tell us anything about the viability of that pregnancy. We also know that in non-viable pregnancies, whether it be a miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy, we know the beta-HCG level is variable as well. So again, knowing about the rate of change in a beta-HCG level doesn't necessarily tell us anything about the viability of that pregnancy.
0: So Alex, I remember being told that the beta-HCG is meant to double every 48 hours or so in a successful pregnancy. What you're saying is that's not true or
1: it's only true to an extent. That's right, look, as a, as a rule of thumb, it's pretty good. And I must say, I do use this and I talk to patients about this sort of doubling rule every 48 hours. And most of the time it does hold true, but certainly it's not uh, something that I would use as a hard and fast rule to diagnose a miscarriage. Um, we know from data of large numbers of pregnancies, uh, we know that the beta hCG level will sometimes double much more quickly than that. Sometimes it will double in not much over 24 hours, and sometimes it will double much more slowly than that. It may take... Three days to double um, in a pregnancy that's a completely normal, healthy, intrauterine, progressive pregnancy. Mm. So, the doubling of every 48 hours is a good ballpark figure that does give you some confidence that a pregnancy is likely to be progressing normally, but it's certainly not something that I would use to make a definite diagnosis of either a viable pregnancy or a non viable pregnancy. Um, really, that has to be based on ultrasound diagnostic criteria or looking at a beta ECG that's positive and later is negative, which is diagnostic of a pregnancy loss.
0: Mm. But also to your point is that beta HCG does not double forever, even in a perfectly normal pregnancy.
1: That's right. So we know that in all normal pregnancies, the beta HCG will rise and then eventually it will start to fall. My point is that, you know, once you've seen an intrauterine pregnancy, it's just a meaningless test to do, you know, it doesn't tell you anything. So, you know, it's a test I wouldn't even order.
0: Okay, that's good to know. So what you're saying is you wouldn't use a beta-HCG to monitor the progression, even if there was a suggestion of first trimester bleeding.
1: That's right. Ultimately, if you have a viable intrauterine pregnancy, the only way to confirm that that pregnancy is remaining viable is with ultrasound to confirm that there's still a heartbeat. Beta-HCG doesn't add any additional information to that scenario, even in the presence of bleeding, even in the presence of a hematoma. Hmm. So we shouldn't do it? Before a pregnancy is confirmed to be intrauterine and before it's been confirmed to be viable, there can be a role for it. Uh, But certainly once a heartbeat is seen, there's really no situation that I can think of where it would be useful to know the rate of change of beta-HCG in that woman.
0: Gotcha. Okay, loud and clear.
1: The, The other thing I'd like to mention is that the diagnostic criteria that we use for, for establishing the diagnosis of a pregnancy loss are very specific and they're designed in that way so that we don't diagnose a progressive pregnancy as a non-progressive pregnancy um, so we're quite strict in how we diagnose a pregnancy loss and really the only way you can diagnose a pregnancy loss there's a few ways one is based on ultrasound criteria so we know if there's a, an embryo of a given size without a heartbeat or if there's a gestational sac of a given size without an embryo inside it, um, those criteria can be used to diagnose a miscarriage. We know that if there's a pregnancy where a heartbeat has previously been seen, and then subsequently a heartbeat is not seen, we know that that's diagnostic of a miscarriage. And we also know that if a woman has a positive pregnancy test, whether it be a urine or a serum pregnancy test, who then develops bleeding and then has a negative pregnancy test, That's also diagnostic of a pregnancy loss, but there are no diagnostic criteria that I'm aware of that make that diagnosis of a pregnancy loss based on the rate of change of beta HCG. So in other words, once we see a pregnancy in the uterus with a heartbeat, there's no value in doing another HCG level and comparing it to a previous number.
0: Would you mind sharing with us those ultrasound criteria for pregnancy loss?
1: Sure. So the the ultrasound criteria for diagnosing pregnancy loss are based on the ASIM criteria. So ASIM is the Australasian Society for Ultrasound in Medicine. And the criteria that they use, um, there's a number of criteria. If there's an embryonic pole in the uterus of seven millimetres or more, so a crown rump length of seven millimetres or more without a heartbeat, that's diagnostic of a miscarriage. If there's a gestational sac with mean sac diameter of at least 25 millimetres without an embryonic pole within it, That's also diagnostic of a miscarriage. And there are some situations where those criteria are not met. So for example, if there's an intrauterine gestational sac, which is smaller than 25 millimetres without a heartbeat, typically the recommendation is to repeat the scan either one week later or two weeks later, depending on the size of the sac. And typically you should find in most cases that there's a heartbeat seen at the subsequent scan. If the gestational sac is less than 12 millimetres in mean diameter at the first scan, you repeat the scan two weeks later, If the gestational sac is more than 12 millimetres in size, you repeat the scan after one week.
0: So when would you monitor the patient's beta-HCG then?
1: Well, to me, there are really four situations when I would order a beta-HCG level. The first situation when I would order a quantitative beta-HCG is in a woman who has a positive urine pregnancy test that has uncertain menstrual dates. And it's helpful to know the beta HCG when she does the first dating scan. So below a level of around 1500 to 2000, typically you won't see too much on ultrasound. But when the beta HCG level is above that so-called discriminatory zone, typically you should see at the very least a gestational sac in the uterus on ultrasound. So in a woman with uncertain dates, if she's got a beta HCG level of say three or 400, It's usually not that helpful to do an ultrasound unless she's got concerning symptoms because we wouldn't expect to necessarily see a pregnancy at that time. So doing a beta HCG is useful in that situation because you can then have a bit of an idea at what point in time it should be over 2000 or so, which is the time when you should be thinking about doing a dating scan. Okay. The second situation in which I would do a quantitative beta HCG is when a woman has a positive urine pregnancy test but no pregnancy is seen on ultrasound. In other words, there's no evidence of an intrauterine or an ectopic pregnancy on ultrasound. So this is the so-called pregnancy of unknown location. And the issue in this situation is that there's a possibility it could be an ectopic pregnancy. And so doing a beta-8CG level and, and monitoring beta-8CG levels in this situation is useful, because if the level is following that rough doubling every 48 hours, that's usually a sign that it's probably an intrauterine pregnancy. If the beta-HCG is plateauing or rising slowly, you'd be more concerned about an ectopic pregnancy. And if the beta-HCG level is declining, that's typically more in keeping with a spontaneous loss of an intrauterine pregnancy. Uh, But again, the rate of change of beta-HCG does not allow you to make a definite diagnosis unless you see something on ultrasound either confirming an intrauterine pregnancy or confirming evidence of an ectopic pregnancy. The third situation when I would do a beta HCG level is monitoring after a spontaneous miscarriage. So if a woman has a an intrauterine pregnancy which spontaneously miscarries, it's useful to confirm that the beta HCG level returns to zero as this would effectively exclude a molar pregnancy in situations where we have products of conception so for example a woman who has a surgical evacuation of the uterus we would routinely send the products of conception for histopathological analysis and this would confirm or this would confirm that it's normal products of conception rather than there being any evidence of a molar pregnancy so if we don't have the benefit of histopathology the usual routine would be to do beta hcg monitoring to confirm that it returns to 0 and the final situation when I would do HCG monitoring is after the uh, after a confirmed diagnosis of a molar pregnancy. And we know in this situation, there are very specific protocols for monitoring the HCG level to confirm that it returns to zero to exclude the diagnosis of gestational trophoblastic neoplasia.
0: So I guess at this point, some of our listeners may ask, look, Okay, so there's no role in doing a beta HCG after you've seen the fetal heart, but what is the harm in doing it? Because obviously, this is a podcast about safe practice. So, if we're talking about something, we're obviously talking about something that has the potential to harm patients. Well, I guess the scenario really demonstrates what the harm could be. The harm is that, you know, if beta HCG inevitably will plateau and will even fall in a healthy pregnancy using it to monitor pregnancy progression beyond that point might cause us as clinicians to interpret a plateauing or a falling HCG as a sign of pregnancy failure Uh, sometimes as you can see from the scenario resulting in attempts to terminate a healthy pregnancy and look even if no attempt is made to terminate a falling beta-HCG can cause significant distress and anxiety to the patient and Even in cases where the pregnancy is ongoing, it can result in unnecessary extra testing to confirm fetal viability. So I guess those are the harms. So Alex, what would be your key take-home messages for our listeners today?
1: For me, the take-home messages here are that a beta-HCG is a useful test for diagnosing pregnancy, whether it be a urine test or a quantitative beta-HCG. Knowing a woman's beta-HCG level gives us a vague idea of her gestational age, but it's certainly not useful in establishing a precise gestational age, which is something that can only be done on ultrasound. Knowing a beta-HCG level can be useful in the in the scenario where an intrauterine pregnancy is yet to be confirmed. So for example, if we haven't yet seen a pregnancy on ultrasound, or if... There's an intrauterine pregnancy, but we haven't confirmed viability yet because it's too early. And it's also useful in monitoring after a pregnancy loss. So after a woman develops pain and bleeding and her beta-HCG goes from being positive to being negative or after a molar pregnancy, there's a very important role in monitoring the HCG level. However, once a pregnancy has been shown to be intrauterine and it's been shown to be viable, i.e. there's an embryonic heartbeat, There's no role that I can think of for monitoring, measuring and monitoring that woman's beta HCG level. And the reason for that is that a beta HCG level will fluctuate in a normal pregnancy, such that a rise or fall or plateauing of a beta HCG level doesn't tell us anything about the viability of a pregnancy that has already been shown to be viable.
0: Gotcha, heard you loud and clear. Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge with us today, Alex. It's been really helpful and I've learned a
1: lot. Thank you, Maria.
0: That's the end of another episode of the Safe Practice Podcast. And this is the bit where I ask you for a favor. If you found the information in today's episode helpful, please share it with your colleagues, because the more clinicians that know about these tips and tricks of safe clinical practice, the better it stands for all of us, both as practitioners of the healthcare system and as consumers of the healthcare system. And that's it today from me, Dr. Maria Lee, and Dr. Alex Owen. Until next time, stay safe.